Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. So this guy is a Christian apologist, writer, speaker, and debater, and he's actually done a few dozen debates against people defending atheism or Islam or other worldviews. He has a PhD in evolutionary biology, which makes him incredible fairly unique in this space. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever spoken to an apologist, a Christian apologist that had a degree in evolutionary biology, but the main focus of his career and really his work overall is to promote intelligent, evidence-based Christian faith. And he kind of has a special emphasis on evidence of design in nature. So guys, if this seems like it's going to be a heady podcast, it's because it's going to be a heady podcast. But just remember, I'm always constantly, I'm constantly telling you guys to cultivate spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. This is part of that mental resilience piece. So I'm always encouraging guys to read. I'm encouraging them to read things that aren't just entertaining and aren't just fun, but some things that are really, really difficult that you maybe have to chew through or something like that. And in this podcast, I'm going to tell you, there's going to be certain segments, you know, 30, 45 second segments where you're going to have to, you're going to be like, wait, wait, what, what did he say? I'm not sure I understood what he was saying. And you'll just go back, just go back, rewind, listen to it again and try to get it in there. Because guys, as he admitted towards the end of the podcast, he is not your entry level apologist. He is there for uh, people that want to go to that next level with their Christian apologetics and I think he's done a fantastic job of doing that in his career. And I really, really enjoyed my conversation with him. So guys, we get into everything on this podcast. We get into the fine tuning arguments. We get into the reliability of the scriptures, the reliability of things that happened with the resurrection and things that went on in acts and extra biblical evidence for all these things. Guys, it is a super, super fun conversation. I really hope you enjoy it, but I won't keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Jonathan McLatchy, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I, I'm so happy to have you on because you could possibly be the smartest person we've ever had on this podcast because you have your PhD in uh, evolutionary biology. And so that's kind of a, a very unique thing in terms of our audience. But let's just go ahead and start as simply as we possibly can, as generic as we possibly can. You're a scientist. You've studied science for a long time in your life. And then we'll get into kind of how that's fed into what you do now as a career. But in the most generic way possible, why did you become a scientist? Sure. So I did my undergraduate degree in forensic biology at University of Strathclyde. Um, was interested uh, to begin with in kind of criminology and the application of scientific evidence to um, to crime crime investigation, uh, which is what forensic science deals with. Um, during my undergraduate years, I became I, I kind of fell in love with the um, molecular um, wonders of the cell and the nanotechnology, which is so pervasive in biology and the information storage, processing, retrieval apparatus in the cell. Um, became very um, impacted by the uh, tremendous uh, evidence that I observed in the world of the cell for design. Uh, the sort of things that we're uncovering in uh, the cell, uh, in my opinion, should end the debate on <laughs> whether there's a God or not. There, there are um, information processing storage and retrieval apparatus. There, there's um, sliding clamps and uh, all there there's it's just a wonder of engineering genius um and so that was i, I think my uh, what got me interested in biology so um so then I, I subsequently was interested in studying more about um life's origins development did a master's degree in evolutionary biology um i interned for a year at the discovery institute in seattle washington uh, where i did a lot of work um in collaboration with stephen meyer and then I did a, another master's degree in molecular biology at Newcastle University. And then finally, as you mentioned, I did a PhD uh, in uh, studying the evolution of the eukaryotic cell cycle at Newcastle University. Okay, perhaps I even should have gone back a step because we'll certainly get more into kind of how science and all the things therein have kind of led you to this faith that you have today. But I'm assuming that you came into your study of science, your, you know, your kind of higher education study of science with some level of Christian faith already. And then you kind of, what, is that fair to say, or is that something that maybe came after? Kind of give us a, an idea of how you kind of came to faith and then what science did to propel that. Sure. So I, I was born in a, in a Christian home. Um, my father's an elder in the church I grew up in. And uh, I grew up in a Bible-believing home in the same way that I grew up in a round earth believing home, a dinosaur-believing home, uh, and so forth, um, uh, a heliocentric-believing home. Yeah. And uh, um, when I went to university, I um, 
was um, I, I became interested in uh, epistemology, how we can determine or or, uh, or um, show whether or not Christianity is true um, in comparison to other religious traditions. So I interacted with various people of Islamic faith, Mormon faith, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I had a friend in undergraduate who was a Taoist. So I, I, I became interested in, in those sorts of uh, questions of how we can know with confidence what is actually true about the world. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I was a Christian before my uh, university um, education. Um, and the more I've studied the evidence for Christianity, both the evidence for and against Christianity, uh, the more I've grown in confidence that Christianity actually is um, in, indeed true. And so you're certainly not that odd of a bird, and we'll get more into kind of how, you know, faith and science have, have collided over the last several centuries. But for a lot of folks, there's maybe this belief that they hold. So perhaps they do what you do for a living or in something similar, and they believe that, but they don't feel the need to go that extra step to become an apologist for the Christian faith. So for you specifically, uh, you know, that's just one of the things that you do in terms of being an apologist. You do debates and you write blogs and different things like that. But why take that next step to actually argue in public about this type of a thing? Yeah, so uh, apologetics is, uh, maybe to do some definitional work first, is um, the exercise of defending your conclusions on the public square. So there's a popular misconception about what apologetics actually is, which is to basically define it as being synonymous with motivated reasoning, where you basically start with a conclusion and then you're trying to find data to shore up what you already come uh, to believe is true for other reasons. Um, the way that I would understand apologetics is the apologetics is what is done after the results of open-ended inquiry are in. So it's not contrary to open-ended inquiry, uh, it, and it's not the same as open-ended inquiry, but it's coextensive with open-ended inquiry. So we do the open-ended inquiry uh, into um, whether there's a God or not, whether Christianity is true, and then we report the results of that fair and balanced inquiry. Um, I, I think that it's important uh, if, if Christianity is indeed true, as I, as I think it is, that uh, we um, explain and, um, and uh, uh, discuss the, the reasons that bring us to those conclusions for public consumption. So that is, I think, the, the importance of, of doing apologetics. I'm a very staunch evidentialist. I'm an evidentialist mm -hmm. through and through. Um, I've sometimes described myself as a, as a Christian rationalist. I am a Christian because and only because I am persuaded by the public evidence that Christianity is in fact true. Um, and so I, I try to educate people about the evidence both for and against Christianity in, in the public square. Okay. So I've heard other Christians say on other podcasts that will re remain nameless for right now. They're just like, it should be self-evident if something is true. There shouldn't be entire college courses and degrees and, and books and voluminous books about something if you have to defend it and it's so difficult to do so. So what would you say to someone like that that thinks that, hey, this should just be second nature. This should just be like, hey, two plus two equals four. Like this isn't that big of a deal. Like we shouldn't be spending this much time on it. Well, first of all, there are plenty of truth truthful propositions in science, which are not obviously true. So for example, um, it is true that the chair I'm sitting on at the moment is mostly composed of empty space um, because of the structure of the atom. It's mostly empty space. Uh, is that obvious that the chair is mostly composed of empty space? No, it's not. Um, but, it, but we know scientifically that it's true. Um, quantum physics, even particle physics, it's, it's just not something which is obvious, uh, but we have good reason to believe it's true. Um, now, sometimes I get asked a related question, which you uh, hinted at there, which is, well, if Christianity is true, why does God require us to do so much work to uncover his existence? Right. Why does God require that we go and acquire PhDs in astrophysics and molecular biology to uncover that he exists? Why can't he just make it so much more immediately apparent to us in the same way that it's immediately apparent that the sky is blue or something like that? Um, and what I would say to that is that I don't think that it is actually that difficult. I think that it's made artificially more difficult than it ought to be by bad scholarship. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, Richard Dawkins in um, The Blind Watchmaker, he says, um, I think it's in The Blind Watchmaker, he says um, that uh, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And uh, what he means by that is that prior to Darwin, uh, it was uh, obvious to people that there's a God. Things appear to be designed, 
And, and so be, uh, the belief in God was very widespread, very prevalent. And then Darwin came along in 1859, he published The Origin of Species, and he proposed a mechanism by which you could explain the appearance of design without recourse to an actual designer. In other words, it's only an illusion of design. Um, and he proposed a natural selection acting on chance variations so arising in the population over time. He didn't understand at the time what genetic mutations were, of course. Um, and uh, and so if, if Darwin is wrong about that, as I actually maintained that he is, then we're back to the drawing board. And actually, we're back to where we were before Darwin, namely that things give the very strong appearance of being desi designed for a purpose. And actually... Uh, in light of the advances in molecular biology in the 20th and 21st centuries, um, I think that we actually have far better grounds for thinking that life appears to be designed than people did even prior to Darwin. Because at the time of Darwin, uh, the um, the cell was kind of viewed as a, a homogenous blob of protoplasm. Um, that was the view of uh, Thomas Andrew Huxley. And um, what we now understand about the cell is that it is... Um, it's um, a set of machines, which actually, um, where you have higher level objectives being accomplished by multiple um, well-matched interacting components that work together to accomplish those higher level objectives. Um, and you find, we, we know now about the information content of the cell and so forth, all of which I think is not particularly surprising on the design hypothesis, but wildly surprising on the falsehood of the design hypothesis. And therefore it points, I think, quite forcefully to intelligent design being the best explanation. Well, I want to dig more into intelligent design here in just a second, but just to back up a step or two, we have been convinced by society, and I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, so just forgive me, but we've been convinced in this kind of post-Christian secular age that we live in that Christianity and science have always been at odds. And it's certainly still so today, which is ridiculous if you know anything about the history of science and the history of the church, but you know we can digress just a little bit. But for you personally, just for Jonathan, right? How do you personally square being a scientist, specifically an evolutionary biologist, and a Christian whenever, you know, the scientific community, as it were, tells you that those two things are oil and water? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I found it to be the complete opposite, where scientific, the, sci the sciences actually um, confirm theism. Uh, I was actually often bewildered in my undergraduate degrees, uh, undergraduate degree, at how one could go through a four-year university program in the natural sciences and come out an atheist at the other end, because the evidence uh, from the natural sciences for theism, both from the physical sciences as well as the life sciences, seems to me to be overwhelmingly in favor of the truth of theism. Um, so uh, not we, we don't only have the the information content of the cell and the irreducible complex nanotechnology, as I mentioned before, we also, in, in the physical sciences, we have things like the fine tuning of the universe mm -hmm. for life, not just as we know it, but life of any form to exist anywhere, anytime in our universe. So for example, the uh, cosmological constant, which determines how rapidly the universe expands, if it were to vary so much as a hair's breadth, I mean, the usual value that's given in the literature is one part in 10 raised to the 120th power, um, then, uh, either the universe would expand so rapidly, you would only ever get the two lightest elements of hydrogen and helium, or you get a big crunch scenario. Um, and in either way, either case, there's no life. Um, and you've got uh, ratio of the strong with nuclear forces, the, um, uh, there, there's the um, gravitational constant, and so forth. Um, all of which, uh, there's the initial low entropy conditions of the universe. In fact, uh, Roger Penrose at Oxford, who's not a Christian or a theist, he's an agnostic a mathematical physicist, has uh, shown that the um, likelihood of getting the initial low entropy conditions of our universe is something like one part in 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123rd power. So in the denominator, there's actually um, 10 to the 123 zeros, which is more zeros after the one than subatomic particles in the known universe, which is 10 to the 80. So uh, you wouldn't even have enough atoms in the universe to write down the number that big. So that, that's the level of fine tuning that we're dealing with. And when you couple that with the biological evidence of the information content of DNA and RNA and so forth, I think you have a very very powerful cumulative argument for the design hypothesis. 
I keep wanting to go backwards because you keep saying awesome things. And I'm like, oh, I want to ask you about this now. So I'm going to go backward once and then hopefully we can keep going forward for the rest of this conversation. But you brought up something very interesting, which is, you know, how could somebody go through these programs and come out on the other end an atheist? For a lot of people, it seems like they agree with everything, right? And you're, you're holding your leftist tears tumbler. So good examples like a guy like Ben Shapiro, like Ben Shapiro believes in the Old Testament, believes in the scriptures, but then his belief kind of stops at Jesus. He just can't get over that next hump, you know, that Jesus is the son of God, right? He is the, the Messiah that is, you know, for we're told about by the prophets. So for you, if you had to kind of put your finger on it, I don't know if you've talked to guys like this, what is that, that thing? Like they agree with you on all of that. They agree with you on the science. They agree with you on the data and you know, the, the mathematics, but they just can't get to the designer. They can't get to that. There's a creator. There's an unmoved mover, if you will. Yeah. So, um, I think, I mean, there's, there's not going to be a one size fits all. Sure. I mean, it's going to be different for different people. Um, for some people, it's that they're um, uncomfortable with the idea of um, a cosmic designer. Um, for example, um, Richard Lewontin um, has a very famous quote. Um, let me see if we can pull it up here. Um, um, so Richard Lewontin was um, a very famous, um, is a very famous biologist, and he says, our willingness to accept um, scientific claims that are against um, common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just those stories, because we have a prior commitment to commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced to, by our a priori adherence to it, material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar Lewis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. So what um, Richard Lewontin is saying there, and, and this is, I think, a sentiment that is shared by many scientists, is that and so that they are um, they are limited to the paradigm of methodological naturalism, which is to say that science can only invoke natural explanations for natural phenomena. And there's some there's some uh, rationale to that. There's some logic to that because. Um, we don't want to um, suddenly invoke a miracle whenever we can't explain something, right? So if we can't explain why there's thunder or lightning, for example, therefore it must be um, the gods fighting or something like that. It must be uh, um, uh, Thor or, or Zeus or, or whatever. Um, and uh, that, of course, is not uh, what we uh, the sort of, the sort of approach that we want to take. Um, and, and there's a I think a common view that uh, invoking God to explain natural phenomena is to appeal to a God of the gaps type argument, which is an argument from ignorance based not on what we do know, but what we don't know. We don't understand feature X, therefore we'll just plug in God or an intelligent designer as a placeholder for that of which we are ignorant. And um, I, what I'd say to that is intelligent design uh, and the case for the existence of God doesn't really work that way. What we're doing rather is building a positive inferential argument to say, well, that these sorts of features of the world, namely biological information, the fine tuning of the laws and constants to permit life such as ourselves, is quite surprising on the naturalistic hypothesis. But it's not at all surprising on the design and theistic hypothesis. And so, um, and so, based upon the top heaviness of that likelihood ratio, um, we we are um, compelled uh, cumulatively to accept the design hypothesis. So, to get further into the design hypothesis. Let's go a little bit into the weeds here, because I feel like against atheism, I, I agree with a guy like Eric Metaxas that they feel like the fine tuning argument is the one that atheists really have to reckon with the most. If they, they are a strict materialist, like they really have to reckon with that. So in your opinion, and I know we can't go into all the different details because this isn't going to be, you know, a 10 part podcast, mm -hmm. but why is the fine tuning of the universe? Why is that the most compelling evidence for there to be some sort of a creator? Yeah, I actually think the biological evidence is even more compelling. But yeah, the fine tuning argument is, is also compelling. So well, uh, let's go into both. Yeah, you just go with yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's and it's a cumulative argument. So uh, so the case for theism has not only the explanatory power to explain the fine tuning and the biological design uh, singularly, individually, but also has the explanatory scope to explain 
all of the relevant data, explaining multiple lines, multiple disciplines, multiple lines of evidence, spanning multiple disciplines. Um, so when it comes to the fine tuning, um, there are um, there, there are basically three possible categories of explanation for any natural phenomena. One is the chance hypothesis. It just happened by a stroke of luck. One is the physical necessity hypothesis. Um, it happens by law-like regularities. And third is a design hypothesis. Um, or you could have some sort of combination thereof. Now, in terms of uh, the natural law hypothesis to explain the fine-tuning, that uh, so that would be to say that, well, perhaps there's some sort of Nat, um, there's some sort of unknown theory of everything which undergirds natural law such that it constrains the constants to um, to be within a very a much narrower range than they could conceivably occupy. So perhaps um, the perhaps the physical constants couldn't actually vary. Perhaps they're the way they are out of physical necessity, or perhaps they are much more constrained than we realize as a result of some sort of underlying physical principle or theory of everything, something along those lines. And what I'd say to that is that um, even if that is the case, and there's, a, there's actually no reason to think that it is, but let's suppose that it is, then you, you've only shifted the problem back one step, right? Because then you still have to explain the fine-tuning in the theory of everything or that underlying principle that results in the constants and parameters of our universe being that which is conducive to life. So you, you don't actually solve the problem. You still are left with a fine-tuning problem. And so then that leaves us with two remaining explanations, namely the theistic design hypothesis or the chance hypothesis. And the most popular um, uh, incarnation of the chance hypothesis is the multiverse scenario, <laughs> right? right? And uh, that's generally combined with um, the anthropic principle, which is to say that, well, we couldn't exist in any other universe because if we, because we can live in any other universe. So it's not hugely surprising that we happen to be in the universe that's conducive to life. And if you combine that with the multiverse scenario, then you can say, well, there's some sort of observer selection effect um, that uh, we uh, we couldn't be in any of the other universes. So it's not surprising if you have that num that amount of probabilistic resources that we happen to be in the one that's conducive to life. Now, what would I say to that? Well, there's a number of responses to that. Um, one of them is the, um, the so-called Boltzmann brain problem, which is named after a very famous Austrian physicist. Um, and it's, uh, it's a little abstract, uh, so I apologize for that. But basically, the idea is that um, the, the, um, it actually, actually becomes much more likely um, than that you would get a, a finely tuned universe that's conducive to complex life forms such as ourselves. It's much more likely than that, that you would get a, a universe that's inhabited by a single brain that fluctuates into existence out of the quantum vacuum. Um, and because it's much more likely if, you, if you're talking about those wild improbabilities, that's what you'd, you'd actually actualize that sort of low patch of order long before you get the sort of fine tuning that we're dealing with when it comes to the origins of life. So actually, uh, it, um, that um, undermines the argument from the selection, the, the observer selection effect, because it's much more likely that we'd be in one of those universes where there's just a brain that fluctuates into existence out of the quantum vacuum. Um, so that's uh, that's one response to that. So um, so the so those reduce uh, the plausibility of those competing explanations, namely the law-like regularities and the chance hypotheses, and therefore in turn redistributes the probabilities such that the probability of the design thesis increases. Well, let's talk about the multiverse that you brought up there a little bit because I remember the first time I heard that I thought someone was kidding. Like I, I thought they were absolutely kidding because there doesn't that seems to you know balk at just common reason. But at the same time, I'm not sure I've seen a lot of overwhelming data to even suggest that that is a legitimate hypothesis. So if you could give us maybe a little bit more detail on that, because, you know, Joe Rogan will just mention it out of hand on one of his podcasts and people are like, oh yeah, multiverse, that's probably realistic. What is the theory? And is there anything that's grounding it to reality? Yeah. So there, there are some, uh, some versions of, um, string theory, which, um, uh, or there's there's some versions of inflationary cosmology uh, rather, which basically predict um, a multiverse or something like that. Um, so th it's not without any scientific basis. And this isn't my area of expertise, though. However, um, let's suppose that um, let's suppose that uh, the multiverse uh, does exist. Well, that actually doesn't help. It doesn't necessarily help to resolve the design hypothesis. And here's why. Because you require um, 
you require the physical constants to vary within those universes. So it's not just any multiverse that will do to solve the French gene problem. But if they're all the same constants as in our universe, then you haven't solved the problem. So there's actually got to be some level of fine tuning for the multiverse because you need to actually vary the constants across probabilistic space in order to vary them sufficiently to uh, to actually uh, cover the probabilistic space and and make it more likely that such a universe such as ourselves would exist. Um, now, um, uh, another another issue is, of course, that all the all the parallel universes would have to be based on the same physics as our as our universe in order to be probabilistically relevant to to our um, universe uh, to the to the fine tuning of our universe. So, um, yeah. So I'm I'm as I said, I'm not an expert on on inflationary cosmology and so forth um, to be able to assess um, the plausibility of the multiverse. Though I've met many physicists who say that it is quite plausible and actually suggested by certain interpretations of of physical theories. Um, but even supposing that to be the case, I don't think that it necessarily uh, resolves the fine-tuning problem. And also, um, given the biological evidence of design, I think you have a, cumul a strong cumulative arguments for pref preferring the theistic design hypothesis. Okay. Uh, you also brought up miracles a second ago. And, you know, you hear a lot of people, especially on the scientific side of things, like, oh, you know, we can't explain that right now. But eventually science will allow us to be able to explain that. For me, in kind of where I'm at, where I sit in the world, I feel like a miracle like if God mm -hmm. created the physical world that he could do his supernatural uh, miracles utilizing the physical world. So when is there maybe a little bit of a, a misunderstanding as to what a miracle is? Because when you say the word miracle, it seems like it's happening outside of space and outside of time and outside of matter and those types of things. But is it a more reasonable approach to say that God can absolutely use the world that he's created to create these things that seem like miracles, but eventually science will be able to quote unquote explain it? Is that a kind of a fair way of looking at it? Uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I would tend to distinguish between uh, providence and a miracle. So, um, so if I pray, because um, let's say I'm in financial need and I pray for God to send resources and then, and then I get a, a check in the mail spontaneously, right? That's yeah. providence. That's not a miracle, right? Um, that's, uh, that, that hasn't um, gone against any of the regularities of nature. It hasn't disrupted any of the regularities of nature. Um, whereas um, if someone rises from the dead, as in Jesus' case, or Lazarus's case, that's a miracle because that goes against um, what happens when nature is left to itself, right? It violates the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the usable energy in the universe must always um, decrease. And that's why you don't get corpses coming back from the dead is because it violates the second law of thermodynamics. Um, so, um, the, so if someone rises from the dead or if um, someone that was... Um, um, blind or, or whatever is spontaneously healed, uh, then that would be um, a, an example of a miracle. That is, so, um, so natural law describes what happens in nature when nature is left to itself. It doesn't tell us anything about what happens when nature is not left to itself. And if we have independent reason to believe that God exists, then I would argue that miracles are at least possible, um, but, or, um, or at least possible because you have someone to actually perform the miracle. A miracle, by definition, is an act of divine fiat. Um, and um, if we, we also, I would argue, in the case of Jesus' resurrection, for instance, have independent reason to believe that God plausibly has motivation for raising Jesus of Nazareth specifically from the dead. So people often say, well, um, a miracle by definition is the least plausible explanation for the data. And so you can't invoke a miracle as the best explanation as an historian, because an historian must always favor the most probable explanation, and a miracle, by definition, is the least probable explanation. Um, and uh, that's taking a very uh, frequentist approach where, well, we don't observe miracles happening. And this is kind of the, 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 that sort of uh, style of argument goes back to David Hume, very, very famous Scottish philosopher. And, uh, and it has modern adherents, very many modern adherents. Bart Ehrman, for example, in his debates on the resurrection, makes that takes that approach. Um, now, there's, um, there's a number of problems with that approach. Um, one is that, um, first of all, um, if, if a miracle is used as a, as a sign, which it is unequivocally in New Testament theology, John talks about the signs that Jesus performed, for example. And, and uh, Paul uh, talks about um, the signs of an apostle that were done in the midst of the Corinthians, right, in 2 Corinthians 12, um, or chapter 11. I think it's chapter 11. Um, he talks about the signs of the of an apostle that were done in the midst of them. Um, and, um, and so if, if miracles are used as signs, then they then it wouldn't be much of a sign if it was something that happened on a routine basis. So for miracles to be functioned as signs predicts 
that you won't observe them very frequently. And so you can't use the fact that they're not observed very frequently as evidence against miracles as science if they're being used as science explicitly predicts that you will not, you will not observe them frequently. So furthermore, um, just because G, um, the probability, so the, the prior probability, so the prior probability is a Bayesian term, it's a statistics term, um, which describes the probability of a particular thing happening just given the background information alone. Now, when it comes to, um, let's say that we hypothesize um, the resurrection of any old Joe Blow that we select uh, that from the uh, from the um, obituary section of, of today's newspaper. It's just take someone at random and say, what's the prior probability this individual is going to be resurrected? It's very small. It's astronomically small um, that they're going to be resurrected. And so you would require a lot of evidence to corroborate that that person actually rose from the dead because the prior probability of it is so infinitesimally small. Now, it doesn't follow, though, from that, that the, pro the prior probability in Jesus' case is similarly low because um, you could have independent reason to believe that um, God has um, special motivation for raising Jesus of Nazareth specifically from the dead. And I, I would argue that case from the likes of Messianic prophecy, for, in for instance, which, and, and also the fact that the trilemma argument, that mm -hmm. um, G which was developed by C.S. Lewis, which is to say that Jesus claimed to be God. I think there's good historical evidence for that. If he claimed to be God, then it's very difficult to be honestly wrong about you being the creator of the universe unless you're completely nuts. And Jesus doesn't seem to have been someone who was completely insane. And and so um, and then that leaves us with okay, he really wants to be claimed to be, or he lied about it. And Jesus, of course, um, went about preaching that he was going to be killed for his um, for his messianic and divine self claims. And there's good evidence that he that he very deliberately and intentionally set um, his face towards doing so. And uh, of course, he was crucified in the most uh, inhumane way possible. In fact, our word excruciating comes from the Latin excruciato as meaning out of the cross. So that suggests, I think, strongly that he was at least sincere in his belief. And so it, so having lowered the, the plausibility of those two remaining explanations, it increases the likelihood of the remaining explanation, namely that he really was who he said he was, So, which, which then contributes to our assessment of the prior probability of Jesus rising from the dead, which is something which is, by the way, predicted of the Messiah in his I-5310, that he would be raised from the dead. So... Um, so yeah, hope, hopefully that um, is a, at least a start to answering that. Yeah, I appreciate you going into that much detail. And we're going to get more into the resurrection and the reliability of kind of that that resurrection story here in just a bit. But I'd be remiss if we skipped all the way there without talking about just the reliability of the scriptures in general, because there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of hate that's being made. Even in my church, I've heard people talk about, well, we can't exactly trust the scriptures because it's been translated so many times and we don't have any of the original documents and things like that. But I'm sure that's come up for you in a lot of your debates and a lot of your study. So for us as 2021 Christians, how can we believe that the scriptures that we have on our phones or sitting on our bookshelves or in our car or something like that are the reliable scriptures? Sure. So uh, there's, uh, of course, that's a very broad topic. So we can only scrap script the surface of, of that right here, right? Um, and unfortunately, there's no kind of silver bullet where you've got like this one piece of evidence that's going to seal the deal, but it's going to be a cumulative argument. Um, and this is actually the approach that I would take to arguing for the resurrection in a nutshell. So the way that I would take the, take to arguing for the resurrection of Jesus historically would be to say, uh, firstly, we have good reason to believe that the Gospels and Acts accurately reflect the testimony of credible eyewitnesses. Um, and and therefore, if that is the case, and I'll show in a moment a few reasons why I think it's the case, then, then we have to take seriously that the resurrection reports in the Gospels and Acts actually reflect what was being claimed by the Jerusalem apostles, um, by, by Jesus' um, original disciples, by the living witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Um, and that is what we need to explain when we're trying to explain the evidence. So um, when anyone makes any sort of testimonial claim, there are three and only three possible explanations for why they made that claim. One is that it's correct, and that's why they're claiming it. One is that they li they're lying about it. And one is that they're honestly mistaken. Now, uh, these are mutually exhaustive. And when it comes to the resurrection testimonies in the Gospels and Acts, uh, these are the sorts of claims that are very difficult to be honestly mistaken about. Um, they are um, they're multi-sensory in character, involving multiple sensory modes, not just individual sightings, but group sightings, 
group conversations with Jesus, physical contact with Jesus, long discourses with Jesus, eating breakfast with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They are very diverse. They occur with appointment, without prior appointment, in different locations. They, um, according to Acts 1, is extended across the 40-day time period. Um, and so it wasn't just a brief and confusing episode. Um, that's the sort of thing that's very difficult to be honestly wrong about. Um, and and so and then there's a whole bunch of other arguments against the hypothesis that they were deliberately lying about it. So that then reduces those um, two competing explanations and in turn redistributes the probability such that the probability of Jesus actually rising from the dead increases significantly. So how then would I substantiate that crucial premise that the Gospels indeed reflect the testimony of credible eyewitnesses? Well, just a few points here. Um, and of course, um, one could talk for hours about this. So we're just going to be able to script the service. But one category of evidence I would use um, is the, the argument from undesigned coincidences in the Gospels. Um, and this is a type of internal evidence that's internal to the Gospels, which actually um, supports and, and confirms their substantial trustworthiness. So to take an example, this is best explained by giving an example. Um, if we go over to John chapter 6 and verse 5, this is the setup for the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And it says that... Um, in verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, this raises a, a question in the mind of the audience. Um, why does Jesus turn to Philip here in particular? Philip's a fairly minor character in the Gospels. Why not, say, turn to Judas Iscariot, who was in charge of the money bag or something? Well, if you turn to chapter 12 of, of John's Gospel, this is six chapters removed, completely different context, talking about a different Passover feast, where there were some Jews at the feast who wanted to speak to Jesus. So they came to Philip and it, to ask him if they could speak to Jesus. And it just adds in parenthesis that Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, very incidental, casual comment. Now, if we go over to Luke's account in chapter 9, this is the parallel of the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And we have uh, the, um, the setup for the feeding of the 5,000. And it says, on the return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And that's where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. So we can actually put the pieces together from John 6, from John 12, and Luke 9, um, where, um, so John, so Luke doesn't mention Philip in this context at all. Um, John doesn't mention Bethsaida as the setting of the miracle story. And it's only in John 12, it's also in John 1, that we learn that Bethsaida, that, that Bethsaida is Philip's hometown. So what's our explanation then for why Jesus speaks to Philip in John 6, 5? Well, Philip's the local guy. He knows where the shops are to buy bread. That's not the sort of um, pattern that, um, that um, fits particularly well on the hypothesis that these are um, fictionalized accounts. This actually um, is better predicted on the hypothesis that this of historical reportage, that the Gospels are actually giving us a, 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 a historical report of what actually happened. Um, and that's a very specific detail also, um, that which disciple Jesus turned to at the feeding of the 5,000. So it supports, doesn't prove, but it supports that the Gospels are actually based on eyewitness testimony. Um, another example of that also relating to the feeding of the 5,000. So there's a, an account of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark in chapter number six. And we read um, that uh, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. That's verse 30 uh, and 31. And uh, so there, there's, so we learn that the place is very busy. There's hustle and bustle, people coming and going. So they can't find anywhere to eat in quiet, peace and quiet. So they go to a desolate place. And then later in the chapter, we learn that um, in verse 39, that Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, it's a very descriptive term, the, the, the green grass. Mark is the only gospel that gives us that detail. And um, now about the green grass. So in Palestine, the grass actually throughout the majority of the year is actually brown, not green except a very narrow window of time because of the higher levels of rainfall during the spring around the time of Passover. And so if you look over at, back at John 6 um, and verse 4, John doesn't tell us about the green grass and doesn't tell us about the people coming and going, indicating the hustle and bustle and the busyness of the place. But he does mention that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand, which then explains and illuminates why it's so busy and why the grass is green. Mm -hmm. Again, the casualness um, of those connections um, tends to support the uh, trustworthiness of those accounts. Um, another example is um, in 
uh, John chapter 12, this is where we have the setup for the feeding of the 5,000. Um, sorry, uh, these, sorry, in John chapter 12, where we have the triumphal entries and the setup for the triumphal entry. So it says, um, chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, and Jesus had raised from the dead. And um, so um, uh, although all four Gospels mention the triumphal entry, John is the only Gospel that gives us the timestamp that Jesus approached Bethany. It was six days before Passover. John is also the only Gospel that mentions in, in verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So John is the only Gospel that mentions that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey the following day after he arrived in Bethany, and that was five days before Passover, right? The next day after six days before is five days before the Passover. Now, if we go over to Mark's account, this is the parallel account in Mark's gospel. We have the um, uh, we have the parallel account, and, um, and Mark actually, unlike John, he telescopes or collapses the narrative. He says he doesn't mention Jesus actually arrived in Bethany the night before, and it wasn't until the morning he sent the disciples to fetch the colt. Rather, it simply says when they drew near to Jerusalem, the Beth region Bethany, the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it, etc. And then um, let's just assume for the sake of argument that John is correct, that Jesus arrives in Bethany five days before Passover, a detail that's specific to John. If we go to verse 11 of Mark 11, it says, He entered Jerusalem, went to the temple. When he loaded her into everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then um, so that would be, if John is correct, five days the evening, five days before Passover. Now, in verse 12, it says, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. That would be the morning, four days before Passover, if John is correct. Verse 19, when evening came, they went out of the city. If John is correct, that's the evening, four days before Passover. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the victory of withered away to its roots. That would be, if John is correct, the morning, three days before Passover. Then in chapter 13, you have the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus has a conversation with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is midway between Jerusalem, where he's been all day, and Bethany, where his accommodation is for the night. So we can assume, I think, reasonably, that this is him on his way home to Bethany, is to his accommodation. This is the evening, three days before Passover. And then you turn to chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover. So it synchronizes exactly mm -hmm. as you would expect, given the chronology that's specific to John. Um, and that's just the, the pinnacle of the iceberg. There, there's dozens upon dozens of those. And there's not only um, undesigned coincidences like those, um, and there's dozens of those, but there's also extra biblical confirmations of details in the Gospels. So, um, and there, there's plenty of those as well. So just to take uh, one example quickly. Um, so in, um, and there's plenty of those I could give. I have an article, by the way, on my website where I discuss quite a number of those. Um, one of those is, um, if you go to... Um, Matthew chapter 2, this is um, the um, nativity account, and um, Joseph and Jesus and Mary have fled to Egypt to escape from Herod um, uh, the Great, who um, tried to kill, tries to kill Jesus. And then Herod the Great passes away, most scholars think, around 4 BC, and um, Joseph is now on his way back to Judea, having learned that Herod the Great is dead. And it would be pretty reasonable inference that... Herod the Great's eldest son, Herod Archelaus, would be reigning in his father's stead. And the father, Herod the Great has died. So in that knowledge, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are on their way back to Judea. And then suddenly he learns that Herod Archelaus is now reigning in place of his father Herod. So now he's very afraid to go to Judea. So instead he goes to Galilee instead. Um, and it turns out if you read Josephus, who was a famous uh, first century Jewish historian, uh, that uh, Herod the Great, following his death, had his territory divided among his sons, his, three of his sons. Um, Herod um, uh, Archelaus began to reign in Judea, and Galilee was ruled by his younger brother, Herod Antipas, and there was also another brother called Philip. Um, so that explains then, first of all, why he could go to Galilee to evade Archelaus, because there was a different guy ruling in Galilee, um, which hadn't been the case during Herod the Great's reign. And furthermore, um, um, why, why is he so afraid of Archelaus? It's the one time he's mentioned in the entire Bible. Well, if you read Josephus, we learn that one of the last things Herod the Great did before his death was to have certain Jews executed for their part in having removed uh, the Roman eagle from the Jewish temple uh, because of its violation of the Second Commandment about having graven images. And Herod the Great found out who was responsible and had them killed, burned to death. And 
then Herod the Great passed away around 4 BC, and then the Archelaus began to reign in Judea. There was uh, an influx of the Passover fe the festival ruled around, so there was an influx of Jewish pilgrims coming in for the Feast of Passover, and the, there were a Jewish mob picked up stones, and they, they struck up an argument with a group of Roman soldiers over what just happened, and picked up stones, and they stoned the Roman soldiers to death. And uh, then they picked up their sacrifices, Josephus tells us, and ran into the Jewish temple. And Archelaus was enraged at the threat upon his government, so he rounded up his entire army. He sent the entire army upon the Jewish temple and told them, don't let anyone leave or enter the temple. Uh, he, he told the horsemen. He surrounded the temple with the horsemen. He sent the foot soldiers into the temple and told them, kill everyone you find. And so he massacred 3,000 Jews in the Jewish temple and then announced to those out with the temple, Passover is cancelled. Return to your homes. So you can imagine Joseph on his way back from Egypt encountering this mass of fleeing pilgrims coming out of Judea, hearing what just happened and being very afraid to go there, and so going to Galilee instead. It, it gives the backstory of what's going on in the biblical account. And that's just the pinnacle of the iceberg. Well, I appreciate you going into all those different subtleties, because i got to be honest, I'd never really even thought of reading the scriptures in that way, because you look at parts in Mark and you're like, okay, that can be corroborated here, or there's a little bit of difference here or there. But I want to get more into the stuff that you were talking about, the extra biblical things that mm. we find, that evidence, because I saw that article on the website. We'll make sure that that's here in the show notes so guys can see those examples. I feel like I don't ever run into pastors, you know, whether they're mine or pastors that I listen to that talk about things that are outside the Bible. Now that may be because, you know, we should go with the reliability of the scriptures and maybe they believe the scriptures are completely true. And, you know, that's how you should believe whatever the situation is. But why do you feel like more people don't know that Josephus even exists and his writings exist and corroborates a lot of things from scriptures? Because I feel like that deals with one of the atheist arguments, which is like, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's, a, you know, it's a self-confirming circle to where it's like you're reading the scripture, but you're believing in the scripture based on faith and nothing else. Does that kind of make sense in terms of like why we don't focus on the extra biblical accounts as much? Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, I think that every Christian should read um, Josephus, at least uh, certain portions of Josephus. Um, I think that it provides a lot of illumination into what's going on in the biblical narrative. Um, also helps to clarify some issues where there are alleged problems. Uh, one example of that is in Mark 10, where um, Jesus is giving teaching on divorce and remarriage, and, and the disciples ask him again about this matter in the house. And he says, if a man divorces um, his wife and marries another, he commits adultery against her. And if the woman commits adult, uh, uh, divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against her husband. And this gives rise to a popular skeptical objection, namely, well, um, Jewish law made no it made provision for a man to divorce his wife, but no provision for a wife to divorce her husband. So is Jesus, is Mark here, like, is he deliberately fudging Jesus' teaching to make it more suitable for a Roman audience where women could initiate divorce proceedings? Or is he um, just a, a Gentile who's ignorant of Jewish law or something like that? Well, it turns out if you read Josephus, uh, he tells us that Herodias uh, took it upon herself to confound the laws of her country uh, she divorced her first husband, who happened to be Philip, Herod's brother, uh, in order to marry Herod Antipas. Um, and so then, uh, now where was Herod Antipas Tetrarch? He was Tetrarch of Galilee. And if you read, that's just where Jesus has been preaching. And actually, if you look at the parallel account in Matthew 19, there are crowds that follow him from Galilee, and they're they're listening to his, his teaching. So he's, he's, he's teaching a, a, an audience from Galilee, and he, he throws in this statement, if a woman divorces her husband to marry another, she commits adultery against her husband. And right at that time, Herodias had taken it upon herself to confound the laws of the Jewish nation, and she divorced Herod Antipas, sorry, uh, divorced Philip in order to marry Herod Antipas, um, and Philip's brother. And uh, and so that that you, you can also use these biblical um, extra biblical sources to corroborate aspects of the biblical narrative. Um, also, things that are somewhat confusing or surprising, like for instance in um, uh, Acts uh, 19, after the riot in Ephesus, the city cleric tells the crowd, there are proconsuls in the plural. Now, a proconsul was a Roman authority to whom you might take a complaint. And normally there would only be one proconsul, but just at that particular time, uh, Cornelius Tacitus tells us, um, there was actually two proconsuls because of the, pre the poisoning of the previous proconsul, Salinas, by poisoning, uh, he was murdered um, by poisoning in the fall of AD 54. Um, and another example is in Acts uh, 23, where Paul is apprehended for the Jewish council, and you wonder, and so he's, the, um, Ananias, the high priest, um, orders for him to be struck in the mouth, and Paul says, uh, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, for according to the law, you um, 
you, charge, you ordered me to be um, stood here, but then contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. And um, uh, the people say, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, how come Paul doesn't know who the high priest is at the time? Well, he reads Josephus, and he tells us that, um, actually, and I have the quotes on my website if anyone's interested, um, that Ananias, of whom that was spoken, was in truth not the high priest, but he'd been sitting in judgment in that same capacity. So he previously held the office. He'd been deposed. The guy who replaced him, called Jonathan, had been murdered. Another had not even appointed to the station. And during that vacancy of his own authority, he assumed upon himself the discharge of the office. And then that illuminates Paul's words. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize he was the high priest, right? It's a jab at Ananias. And so when you read these extra biblical sources, it helps to illuminate and clarify and corroborate, incidentally, the um, the biblical narratives. And I think that's much more power, a much more powerful way of arguing for the reliability of the biblical accounts than to use the more indirect, uh, sorry, the, the, the more direct um, testimony, such as the testimony of Labianum in volume 18 of Josephus, because Josephus, as many of your viewers probably know, he mentions just Jesus in a very short mm -hmm. paragraph in uh, as soon as the testimony in Flavianum. Uh, I never use that text in my apologetics, and there's uh, one uh, good reason for that, in that Josephus is dependent upon Christians. So all it tells us is that there are Christians in the first century who believe certain things about Jesus, which we already know from the New Testament. Um, and uh, there, the text is also suspect in terms of how much of it's interpolated. Uh, I tend to think that um, it's quite plausible that the whole text may be interpolated, especially in view of the fact that Oregon, uh, who quotes Josephus quite a bit in his discussion, in his dialogue with his, his against Celsus, uh, he, um, he doesn't allude to that text at all um, in the second century. So uh, I, I don't use that, that text at all. But I think the indirect, more casual, um, in, um, incidental allusions are much more powerful um, as an argument for gospel reliability. Absolutely. And I'm glad there are people out there like you that have found these or kind of coalesce all these things from other readings, because that's helpful for someone like like me or anyone listening to this to be able to understand that there are other ways to corroborate what we're seeing, not just what we're reading here in English. Uh, now, I just got to tell you, Jonathan, I was planning on doing some like role playing with you. Like I was going to pretend to be like some sort of crazy atheist, but I think we're going to run out of time because I had all kinds of crazy zingers I was going to throw at you, but we'll keep it a little bit more academic. There are a couple of very difficult subjects that I know have come up with you with apologetics, but these are things that come up when I'm having conversations with people trying to bring them towards faith or, or show them the light or anything like that, however you phrase it, that are really big time hangups for them. So I would love to get your perspective on just a couple of these, and then we'll move towards the end of the podcast here. And the first thing is probably the one that's the most common, and that's the problem of evil or the problem of pain, essentially that, you know, if there is a God, he's so uninvolved that he's evil, right? Because all this injustice is going on all over the world, or he just doesn't exist at all. And so how have you dealt with that in the past? And what have been some of the best ways that you've found to maybe turn people to the other side of the argument when we're talking about the problem of pain, the problem of evil? Yeah. So first of all, um, I think that the problem of evil is evidence against theism. I think that it's evidence on the atheist uh, side. Um, and uh, I, one thing I try to encourage people to do is to, um, to, be candid about when there's evidence in favor of your view and the evidence that goes against it. Because uh, I think that for any complex topic, whether that's um, evolution or Christianity or existence of God or um, uh, or whatever, um, climate change, uh, whatever, uh, there it's almost never the case um, that there is the only evidence is lopsided. The only evidence supports one view and there's no evidence on the other side. Otherwise, why would academics disagree on topics, mm -hmm. right? So. I think that the problem of evil is some evidence against theism. Now, why am I still a theist? Well, I think the evidence for theism is stronger than the evidence against it. The way I would define evidence is um, that something is evidence if it raises the probability for a proposition being true. Um, and uh, and uh, evidence is, uh, is defined as a likelihood ratio. As, as a Bayesian, I would define evidence as a likelihood ratio. And the, of the probability of the evidence existing, given the hypothesis being correct, against the probability of that same evidence existing, given the hypothesis is incorrect. And um, what, uh, there's a few things, though, that I would note about the problem of evil. One is that it's very easy for people to, um, to become so fixated on arguments against theism that they miss the forest for the trees and miss the avalanche of um, confirmatory evidence for theism. Um, and for Christianity more particularly. Um, furthermore, um, it's very easy to become, uh, to, to overestimate the potency of the problem of evil. And um, one reason for that is 
because the um, pe people who um, like to use the problem of evil as an argument against theism are generally very impressed with the sheer number of instances in the world of suffering and evil. But these are not epistemically independent, right? These are, um, so if, so to, to explain this, so imagine, let's say hypothetically, we discover the first instance of evil in the world, right? Let's call it evidence one, right? Um, it's, uh, let's say that it has, um, taking an arbitrary figure, let's just say that it has a base factor of 100, meaning that it's 100 times more likely if atheism is true than if theism is true. It doesn't follow, though, that the same piece of the, the second piece of evidence carries the same evidential weight, because if God has a morally sufficient justification for permitting instance one, he might well have a similar morally sufficient reason for permitting instance two and instance three and instance four and so forth. So uh, there is the problem of diminishing returns for multiplying examples where um, the, um, after a certain level, um, adding more examples doesn't really add more weight to the case mm. because um, if, if God has a morally sufficient reason for the other ones, then he may well have a similar one for the next one and so forth. Whereas by contrast with the case for theism and the case for Christianity more particularly, we not only have extensive evidence, but it's also varied in kind, meaning that we have um, lots of a multidisciplinary case based on not just lots of examples of the same thing, but varied varied kinds of evidence. Um, so that's, um, I think, something I, I, would, I would say there. And also, finally, uh, there's a problem of what my colleague Timothy McGrew, who's a philosopher, calls um, the problem of evidential entanglement, which is that, um, th let's say the problem of evil is, is quite, in, quite surprising on theism or quite improbable on theism. It's also quite improbable on atheism because um, the problem of evil presupposes that you have sentient conscious experience. You can't experience suffering if you're not conscious, right? You can't experience, and you can't exercise evil if you're not conscious. Conscious. So, but but consciousness, um, and there's many of the preconditions for consciousness arising in the universe are points of leverage that have traditionally been used in support of theism. And so actually, um, uh, consciousness arising in the universe is very surprising on theism. Uh, sorry, it's very surprising on atheism. And so, uh, so evil existing in the world is quite surprising on theism or atheism, which are two mutually exhaustive propositions. So that also, I think, reduces the evidential force of the problem of evil. I think that that's important for people to kind of distinguish because that is there are so many ways to answer that question, but I feel like most people just answer it poorly and then people can kind of walk away with their same presuppositions. The other thing that I get aside from the problem of evil is who created God? I guess that's the easiest way to say it. I know you've talked about that before, but it's basically if God created everything, then who or what created him? And I got to be honest, I was driving around the other day and I was like, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. If somebody were to say that, and I can't say, oh, you just got to have faith or something dumb like that. But if someone says, you know, hey, who created God? If God, you know, created the entire universe, where, like, how did he become to be in the first place? Yeah. So there's a few problems there. I'd say that's one of the weaker um, objections to theism. Um, for one thing, uh, um, so every worldview must ultimately come back to an unmoved mover, um, something which exists necessarily. It didn't begin to exist. It's not contingent for its existence on something else. Um, and uh, uh, in the 20th century, when the steady state theory was the prominent cosmology, um, which maintained the universe was eternal in existence, it was a lot easier to believe that perhaps the universe is that um uncaused first cause that it just exists out of brute necessity it didn't begin to exist it's not dependent for its existence on anything else now with um what we discovered in the 20th century um thanks to um albert einstein and um uh, edwin hubble and, and others um uh the uh the um the, the, we now know that the universe actually began to exist about 13.8 billion years ago at a point called the Big Bang. And uh, that um, that being the case, matter is rather a crummy candidate for that rule of unmoved mover or uncaused first cause. Um, and so it points, I think, quite forcefully to um, to uh, matter being contingent. And therefore, uh, you, have to, you have to ground the explanation of matter in something else. Now, everything which exists either exists because of it, it because of um, something else bring into existence or it exists because of the necessity of its own nature so um, abstract objects like numbers for example they weren't caused to exist by something else but they exist um, out of the necessity of their own nature at least uh, a lot of mathematicians take that view so um, and, and ultimately everything must come back to something like that so 
Um, I, I personally think that theism is the best candidate, um, especially in view of the fact that so, so God is viewed as a necessary being, he's eternal, and the only way for an eternal being or an eternal set of necessary, so if you have an eternal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, the effect necessarily is there, right? Uh, so if you have the if you have a pool of water that's been in a zero degree centigrade for all of eternity, well, it's going to be frozen for all of eternity as well because the necessary the set the necessary and sufficient set of conditions are present already. Whereas, uh, so um, if we're having an eternal cause exerting a temporal effect. Um, some philosophers have argued that the best way to make sense of that is to posit a conscious being that can freely choose or freely will the universe into existence at, 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 at let's say, time zero. Um, so, um, yeah, so God is defined as a necessary being, and a necessary being doesn't, doesn't need a cause external to itself to explain its existence. And finally, I'd also add that not having an explanation, so positing an explanation as the best explanation for a given phenomena does not require you to have an explanation of that explanation. Otherwise, you would... Result, it would result in an infinite chain of explanations sure. or an infinite regress, and you would never explain anything. Absolutely. Hey, well, I appreciate you going into all that detail. You've given a lot of great detail on all these different cool. subjects. But now we're going to get down to something I like to do at the end of my interviews. It's called, what would you say to someone that said? And so I'm going to say that. What would you say to someone that said? And then I'm going to fill in the blanks. But here's the thing. This is lightning round. You have 30 seconds maximum to answer the question. So we can't go off into a whole lot of detail. It is just straight up meat and potatoes. I'm going to be putting you in a box, Jonathan. So you up for it? Mm -hmm. All sure right, thing. here we go. Here's the first one. What would you say to someone that said Jesus of Nazareth never existed? Uh, he did. And um, there's overwhelming evidence from from uh, the, the Gospels. Uh, Paul, Paul, we know one author who knew Jesus' brother, namely the Apostle Paul. He knew Jesus' brother James, as well as Jesus' close disciple Peter. Um, I have a whole article where I address Richard Carrier in detail. Um, his book um, um, on this stress of Jesus, why you might have reason to doubt. I think it's a train wreck if you want to know why and some of my interaction with his uh, analysis of the Pauline corpus, then check out the article. Okay, sounds good. What would you say to someone that said Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, whatever, all roads lead to God? Um, I would say um, that that doesn't make any sense because um, Christianity makes a unique truth claims, uh, namely that um, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by through me. Acts 4, verse 12 says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which you might be saved. And uh, so, uh, so and Christianity, of course, contradicts Islam. Islam 4, verse 1, 5, 7 says that Jesus was never crucified. So, well, which is it? Well, only one of those could be true. Right. You're crushing it. You're doing a great job so far. Let's keep going. <laughs> what would you say to someone that said Christian apologetics is not intellectually accessible for most people? Uh, I'd, I'd say it depends on the um, level of apologetics. So um, not so there are different levels of apologetics. I tend to be more of an academic apologist. So I, I'm not I, I don't pitch my work to beginners. Um, I, I'm, I'm for my work, I think, is for people that want to go to the next level in apologetics. But there are popular level apologists who are worth reading as well. So um, I, I think it depends on what, which authors you're reading. All right. Good deal. What would you say to someone that said, I guess I believe in God, but this whole Jesus thing is kind of weird? Um, I'd say to study the New Testament, in particular, the evidence for it, both internal and external, uh, that support that Jesus was a real person, that the Gospels are substantially trustworthy, historically reported of his life and deeds, um, and uh, and that he really, in fact, rose from the dead and vindicated thereby his radical messianic and divine self-claims. Okay. What would you say to someone that said, we simply cannot trust the biblical scriptures because we have no way of knowing that they've been translated accurately? Uh, well, we can check the translation for ourselves. So that's easy, right? If you, you can learn Greek and Hebrew, you can go to seminary or university. Um, and also, we even if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, we have Bible software like Logos Bible software, for example, which gives you tools that you can use to actually get down to the original language and find out how the word, you can search how a word is used by Aristotle or the early church fathers or Josephus and so, and so forth to find out what the word actually means. Absolutely. We only have a few left here. What would you say to someone that said, the Christians have the Crusades, Muslims have jihad. They're essentially the same thing. Um, I'd say that that commits the fallacy of argumentum and, and uh, consequentialism, which is to say that because a belief has, has, has had certain consequences or has been used in a certain way, uh, or it could even be an ad hominem fallacy um, against the men, um, the, therefore it's, it's false. Um, and it, that simply doesn't follow. Okay. What would you say to someone that said, I hate God? Um, 
I would say, okay, um, <laughs> um, why, why do you hate God? Yeah, that kind of goes outside the world of academics, and there's probably a whole lot more to go there. But this is my last question for the day here. What would you say to someone that said, science and Christianity will never mix? Uh, what brought you to that conclusion? <laughs> well, I'm going to make you go a little bit further on that last one. But for those people, again, just kind of drive that last point home that they think oil and water, Christianity and science, what would you say to them? Um, I would say... Um, that there's overwhelming evidence, I think, from the natural sciences for theism. Um, I um, I could get into my my take on the early chapters of Genesis, but that would take a while, so <laughs> I won't go there. But I'll direct people to my website where I discuss the early chapters of Genesis in some detail. We will get in that into the show notes, guys, and maybe we can do a round two where we dig even further into all this detail. But I really, really appreciate you being as thorough as you were, even though we were just scratching the surface on a lot of these things. But that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I think that's great. It's been great being here. Thanks for having me on and great questions. All right. Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. I told you it was going to be a heady one, but there's a lot there for you guys to chew on in the future, so make sure you do that. Before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, and we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are all the links I've got for you. I've got a link to his website, and guys, he's got a lot of different things on his website, so he's got a lot of these articles that we, we discuss, but he's also got some different formulas, and or not, not formulas, not like a scientific formula, but he's got different uh, resources there for you. There's the word resources that you can, if you're questioning your faith or if you're having some questions or some doubts, he's able to help you with that. All that comes through his website, but I've also got a link to his YouTube channel, his Facebook page, and also specifically this one particular thing that he talked about in the podcast. I just used a link from Cross-Examined, but it's called Extra Biblical Evidence and for the Veracity of the Gospel History. And so this is a long article. It's almost like a little pamphlet in itself, but that is great, great information for you guys. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave a a review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>